There is something wrong with the world. Can you see it? Do you feel it? It's all over the internet, on our news feeds, in our relationships. Things are just wrong, and they are getting worse. Society has become, in a word, toxic. But the gospel has an antidote. You see, some of you were once like that. You were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God. By calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the Spirit of our God. All right, church family, good to be back with you today for our toxicity series. We are detoxing our lives from the toxic culture around us, and this is especially a toxicity kind of message today. I'm just thankful anybody's here after last week. That was rough, man. I'm glad you guys are with me, and I'm appreciating that we still have a church after that message. But today might be a little bit more challenging for some of us as we enter into toxic romance, toxic romance. And so um, I thought I should remove my mask and just get right into it here. And uh, let me just say something really serious. This is not an easy message today. It's not easy to preach. It's probably not easy to hear. It's definitely not politically correct, and it has the potential to offend people. Now, with that said, this message is not about anybody in here specifically. No one was in my mind as we were crafting this message here. It's just the next passage in our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. That's what we do. We go through the Word of God. That's how discipleship happens, and so that's what we are committed to here at NBC, and so here we are talking about the important topic of toxic uh, romance. As we do, I want to just put an image in your mind that'll kind of trace its theme through the message today, and that's the image of a guardrail. Generally, we find guardrails out there when we're driving around bridges and sometimes around more dangerous areas. And the whole point of a guardrail is to keep you from moving into an area of actual danger. And the whole theory behind a guardrail is that if you hit a guardrail, it will do some damage to you and to your car, but it would have done a lot more damage if you were to go beyond the guardrail to whatever is on the other side of that guardrail. It might hurt to bump into a guardrail, but it would hurt far worse to go beyond the guardrail. So the guardrail is there to protect you. God in his word has given us guardrails to keep us, his people, from danger. There's guardrails in a lot of different areas of life. And if you think about it, I think we would all agree that the greatest regrets I have, the greatest regrets we have, the greatest regrets that you have in your life could have been avoided if we would have just paid attention to the guardrails that God places for us in his word. One of the guardrails we find here in the scriptures are the guardrails around marriage and sexuality and the whole issue of divorce. And so that's what this topic is about today. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you have a copy of God's word, we'll start in verse 12 and go through chapter 7, verse 40, as the Apostle Paul speaks directly to these issues 
today. You'll see four different sections in this passage of Scripture. We're going to see the biblical guidance concerning intimacy, the biblical guidance concerning marriage, biblical guidance concerning singlehood, and then finally, the longest section will be the biblical guidance concerning divorce. You might say, why do we have to talk about this stuff in church? This is a sacred moment, and I'm not sure we have to get into all this stuff. Well, let me just assure you, uh, if we as the church don't or aren't willing to talk about these things, I guarantee you the world will be happy to disciple you in these things, and they will be happy to disciple all of your children and all of your grandchildren on these things. And so these things are in the Word of God for a reason. Now this is, as we preachers like to say, a grip it and rip it sermon. And what that means is the more controversial the issue, uh, the more I, as the preacher, are going to hold very tightly to the text, and I'm just going to let it rip. And so for you, just look at God's Word and see what it has to say to you and ask for an open heart. That's my challenge for you today. So why don't we pray, and then we will dive right into the deep end of the pool. Would you pray with me? God, we just thank you so much for preserving this text. This is a sensitive topic today. We do want to hear from you. Give us faith to believe your word. Uh, Bring conviction uh, where we need it, Lord. I pray that you'd comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Uh, Whatever you're calling us to obey here, help us to receive that with with gratitude. Uh, We want your blessing on our lives. That's, That's what we desire. There's so many opinions about these things, Lord. Today, we come into your house because we want to hear from you. And so to that end, we desperately pray. We want our, these areas in our lives to be pleasing to you. And so we ask for that for Christ's sake and his reputation. And everyone said, amen. amen. Let's dig into movement one, biblical guidance concerning intimacy. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Pause right there. Notice on the screen the quotation marks. Notice in verses 12 and 13 that there are quotation marks here. The reason there are quotation marks is because these were common Corinthian slogans in that particular culture. And so what they would say in that culture is all things are lawful for me, all things are lawful for me, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach meant for food. These were some of their slogans. And so basically what they mean here is that sex is just a physical desire. When you get hungry, you eat, don't you? When you get thirsty, you drink, don't you? And that was their logic. Everything is permitted since the food is meant for stomach and stomach is meant for the food. Well, all bodily appetites must be the same, and so the body is meant for sex and sex is meant for the body. Paul says... No, that's the strongest possible negative in the Greek language. No, that's not true. That's not possible. May it never be. He argues directly against their false premises and their distortions of Christian freedom. He says it's actually bondage, and you have a big misunderstanding about the nature of the human body. The key question for Christian ethics is never whether an action is just simply lawful. The question we have to ask ourselves when it comes to Christian ethics is, is this behavior helpful? Is this behavior beneficial, especially for the other people around you? Does this particular behavior lead to slavery, or does this particular behavior lead to freedom? Those are the questions. Paul goes on to say this, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So here is the word that we need to look at in this first movement, this word immorality. Uh, The Greek word behind this English word is the word porneia. 
Porneia, it's where we get our English word pornography. But it's really a much larger term than that. It was an umbrella term that pretty much described any kind of sexual activity outside of the Genesis chapter 2 ideal. It was a junk drawer term where you can throw in any kind of activity outside of that circle. And so here's what would be outside of that circle. Fornication, sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, same-sex sexual relations, polygamy, polyamory, pedophilia, prostitution, bestiality, cohabitation, sex trafficking, adultery, adult establishments involving the removing of clothing for financial tips such as strip clubs, nude beaches, clothing optional resorts, massage parlors that involve immorality, and any kind of pornographic material in print or digital form. That's a big list. Now you might say, yeah, Pastor Dave. Some of you are going, get him, Pastor Dave. That's what we need to talk about here. But here's the truth. All of those things listed under the heading of pornea apply to all of us in some way, shape, or form. Paul gets all of us right here. I want you to listen very carefully. If you're visiting here today, if you're watching here today, listen to this section of the message. We are not, in this church, we are not the good people telling all the bad people that they need to be good. Rather, we are the bad people who've been saved by the only good person who ever lived. His name is Jesus Christ. That's who we serve. That's who we worship. That's why we gather together on Sunday mornings. Now, the specific expression of pornea in this church, the church at Corinth that Paul is addressing, was the issue of prostitution. There was a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess in their town, and there would be rampant prostitution happening there. So Paul says, no, 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 that's not an appropriate sexual expression. He says this in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Notice again, verse 15, never, God forbid, may it never be. This immorality is not good. Now, why is this wrong? Look at Paul's reasoning. He says, sex is not just a physical appetite. Don't you know? It's a spiritual union. Sex in God's creation is like spiritual superglue meant to bring two individuals together. God has designed it in such a way to bring two people together. And we know this is true. Even from modern research, we know that chemicals are released in the brain, such as oxytocin, which creates a bonding between two people who are intimate with one another. The Hebrew word for sex was the word dode, and it literally meant the mingling of souls. Sex was not just an emotional or a physical tie. It was a spiritual union. It's not just a physical appetite. Paul says there's a context. There's a place where this is appropriate inside the covenant of marriage. Get outside of that covenant of marriage. Paul says it's toxic. In fact, he says this, flee from sexual immorality. Flee. The word flee there means run for your life. This is so bad, you should run for your life. Now think about it. This is the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians 6, he tells us when it comes to Satan and the devil, we should stand firm. We should, we should face our enemy. We should resist the devil. He will flee. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But when it comes to an opportunity for sexual immorality, Paul does not say stand your ground. 
Paul says, run, Forrest, run. You need to run like you're on fire. Don't wait around. You need to get out of there. Be like Joseph in Genesis. Run and don't look back. Why? Because sexual immorality is toxic, not just for you, but for everyone around you. There are consequences physically, emotionally, and spiritually to immorality. It can bring sexually transmitted diseases, out-of-wedlock pregnancies. It will break down trust in all of your relationships. It's toxic. Run. Flee. Then he goes on to say this. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In case you didn't catch his reasoning here, Paul says, You belong to God. In other words, who made you? Who redeemed you? Who will one day resurrect you? The answer is God. See, one of their slogans in that day was, My body, my choice. This was the bumper sticker on the back of all of their camels. But if you're a Christian, God says, that's not true. Do you not know? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus purchased you with his own blood. He is your Lord. Paul says you belong to him. You need to submit to his lordship in this area. These were their slogans. We have our own slogans in our culture, don't we? They're just as toxic today as they were back then. Here's another slogan from our culture. Love is love. This is a a very popular slogan, and it's culturally just basically justifies any sexual sin. Our slogans, just as toxic as their slogans. But here's what we believe as Christ followers. Here's what we believe as those who want to submit our life to God. We believe this. Whoever designs it gets to define it. Whoever designs it gets to define it. God designed sex. God designed this whole world as its creator. He designed marriage. He designed sex to be inside of marriage between one biological man and one biological woman for life. Then comes the expression of intimacy after marriage, not before. He designed it. He gets to define it. I think our culture desperately needs this message. All of the guardrails are being taken down. The church needs to hear afresh the doctrine of the sanctity of the human body. It's not legalistic to talk about this. It's not prudish to talk about this. It is just recognizing what God wants for us, his people, for our own protection. There's an old African proverb that says this. Before you take down a fence, find out why it was put up in the first place. This is the message that our culture needs to hear. Wise words. And so as we wrap up this first section in our passage for today, to all of us, let us heed the warning of the Apostle Paul and flee immorality. Uh, Let me speak to the men in particular, just man to man. Men, your lust will never be satisfied and it will ruin you. Do not give up your fight against lust. If you do, it will destroy your life. You have no idea what God wants to do with you and in you and through you if you would just dedicate yourself to him and to his ways. And of course, I know women need the same message as well. But here's what we need to believe about God and his word. 
God is not trying to keep something from you. God is trying to give something to you. This is why he gave us the guardrails. Let me speak to the parents as a parent myself. Parents, make sure your children's phones do not have access to pornographic material. Protect them and equip them to flee immorality in this area. These are the guardrails your children need. This is the will of God for your children. Flee immorality. That's movement one. Now the next section, in light of what Paul has just said in chapter six, might seem like a little bit of a contradiction here as he starts to give some guidance about marriage. They were confused about marriage back then just as we are confused about marriage today. Pastor Bobby Scott says it well. People relate to marriage a little bit like flies on a screen door. Half of them want to get out, half of them want to get in. These are the kind of problems that Paul speaks into back then too. This is a new section where Paul is going to begin to answer the church's questions. Chapter seven, verse one, he'll say, now concerning. Peridae is the Greek construction. Now concerning, chapter eight, verse one. And he'll continue to answer their specific questions. Here's their first question that they ask him. Seven, one says this. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Again, notice the quotation marks. This is what they are saying. They are saying that Paul, perhaps in light of what you just taught us in chapter six, maybe it's good never to have sexual relations, even if we're married. Maybe we should just be abstinent even inside of the covenant of marriage. Uh, This was called asceticism. It's this idea that we should deprive our bodies of any kind of physical pleasure. That's not a good idea either. So if chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians is Paul addressing the sexual liberals, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians is Paul addressing the sexual conservatives. And so he gets all of us here. Take a look with me as he continues in verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Pause there for a second. Don't make too much of the word authority there. It doesn't make any room for anything that's not completely consensual in the context of marriage. The attitude of marriage should never be, you owe me. It should always be, I owe you. It just means that when we're married, we have an obligation to meet our spouse's needs in this area willingly. And so we we shouldn't deprive each other unless there's a higher spiritual purpose, such as prayer or fasting, but make sure that's temporary. Come back together after that time. I emphasize this. Uh, Because there is a cultural narrative out there. If you haven't run into it, you will. And the narrative simply says, Christians are sexually repressive. And they're anti-sex. And they've got this toxic purity culture out there. And so the narrative says that more liberated, quote, sex-positive people should enjoy their sexuality without any guilt. Whereas those who internalize the church's repressive uh, purity culture will be anti-sex, riddled with shame, unable to enjoy sexual intimacy. That's the claim. But I would say respectfully that that is a toxic idea. And the data simply does not agree. Study after study shows that those who have the most satisfying relationships in terms of intimacy are people in a lifelong covenant partnership in marriage. These are church-going conservative Christians in this category with the most fulfilling sex lives in America. Why? 
It turns out that putting a premium on covenant marriage creates a relational dynamic of trust filled with the kind of passion that this world wants us to think is only produced by liberation from Scripture's outdated sexual mores. That is not true. I just love how sociology keeps discovering what theology has already known for thousands of years. Let me just give you an image to take with you that's a picture of the structure of a Christian marriage. The foundation of the structure is a relationship with God as husband and wife are rightly related to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. On top of that, a friendship is developed in the marriage that husband and wife become best friends. And then, of course, built on top of that is marital intimacy. If you need to take your phone out and take a picture of the screen, it is worth the price of admission today, which is free. But anyway, if you have foundation issues in your house, if you see the doors don't shut, if you see there's cracks in the walls, if you see there's trouble up on the second floor, you got to go back down and find out what's going on with the foundation. Of course, you're going to have issues up top if the foundation isn't right at the bottom. This is a picture of Christian marriage. And when it's working right, intimacy is working by God's design. Genesis says sex was God's idea. He created it before the fall of mankind. It is not inherently sinful. In fact, we're commanded in Genesis to be fruitful and to multiply. Sex is a good thing. We should magnify sexuality and marriage inside of those boundaries. This is God's will for you, married people. There's somebody visiting today for the first time going, this is my church. Yes, this is my church. So that's the biblical guidance for marriage. Then he switches gears to movement three and talks about the biblical guidance for singlehood. So with this said, Paul turns to talk about being single and he makes a concession. Take a look with me at verse six. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Here, the Apostle Paul is teaching that some have been given the gift, the word is charisma, the gift of celibacy. Now, the gift of celibacy means you have freedom from sexual needs. It's an ability to live without physical or intimate sexual fulfillment with total contentment. That's the gift of celibacy. This type of person will have more freedom to serve the Lord. And Paul puts himself in that category. Paul says this is a very good thing. This is not a requirement. doesn't make me superior to anybody. doesn't make anybody superior who has this gift. But it is a special gift that's been given to the body of Christ. He goes on to explain this more in verse 8. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So if you can stay single and be content, Paul says, that's great. But if you cannot, if you desire to be married, Paul says, that's good too. Let me drop down to verse 25 and just read a little bit of scripture for you. This is going to be a longer section where I'm just going to read. You're going to listen. So just sit back, buckle your seatbelts, and hear the word of God. Verse 25. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. 
And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. And all the married people today said, amen. Now, actually, seriously, the present distress that he's referring to here was probably that in first century Corinth, they were about to experience severe persecution by the Roman government. And as you can imagine, just like if you were married in Ukraine today, being married in the midst of turmoil politically and socially would be a very difficult environment to have a family. And so Paul says, I'm just trying to spare you that because it would be tough to be married in that setting. He goes on to say this in verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and he should be, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband, and she should be. Verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Drop down with me to verse 38. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. That was a lot. Let me just point out a couple things. First of all, notice in verse 39 that Paul says a believer should only marry another believer. A believer should not marry an unbeliever and be unequal yoked in that way. But other than that, Paul says you can serve the Lord in either of these situations. Whether you stay married or whether you stay single, whether you're married or single, both are live options on the table for any follower of Christ. After all, the Bible does say in Proverbs chapter 18, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and finds favor with the Lord. But Paul also says you need to recognize that singleness does have its advantages. And so let me just say this. If you are here today and you are choosing to be single in the body of Christ, you are not a second-class citizen. Singles are like the special forces in the church, ready to serve the Lord with energy and passion. Sometimes we in the church, or maybe we even as parents, put a little too much pressure on our kids who are single or college students in our midst, and we make them feel like they're somewhat of a disappointment if they're not yet married. And we begin to think things like, hey, better get a ring by spring. I don't think that that's an appropriate attitude to have towards our kids or towards singles in our midst. The Apostle Paul was a single man. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ who lived his entire life as a single man. This can be a very noble calling. Now the flip side is those who are singles who aren't called to be single, they shouldn't be reluctant to step up and make a commitment. That's a whole different kind of problem. Nonetheless, we need to encourage people who choose a lifestyle of singleness. It should be normalized. Uh, one of my mentors and professors at seminary was Dr. Abraham Curavilla. He chose the single lifestyle for himself, and he would talk about it uh, often. He's an amazing man. He's a medical doctor, and he also has his PhD in theology, so he teaches at the seminary, and he has his practice. And he is 
I'll say it this way. He's the finest preacher I've ever heard in my entire life. Anytime I've done a good sermon and you think that was a pretty good sermon, it's probably because I sat under this man who was an amazing expositor of the word. If you want to read more about his story, I provided an article in your message notes. You can dive into that further. So let me give some advice to you singles. This is a noble calling. And let me also give it some advice to singles who desire to be married. And this isn't your calling. That's okay, too. If you're here today and you're single or you're a student and you want to be married, here's what I would advise that you do. You need to become the person the person you're looking for is looking for. Become the person the person you're looking for is looking for. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians that talks about being unequally yoked with unbelievers. And that's true. That was a farming image back then. And you were never supposed to yoke two different kinds of animals with the same yoke. But you were also not to yoke together two different animals that would plow at different speeds. That would also be being unequally yoked. And so here's what you need to do if you're a single and you desire to be married. You need to run towards Jesus Christ as fast as you can and as hard as you can. And one day as you're running toward the Lord Jesus Christ, one day if it is God's will for you, you will look to your right and you will see someone else that's running as fast as they can and as hard as they can at the same exact speed. Marry that guy. Marry that girl. That's what you need to do if you're a single. Become the person the person you're looking for is looking for. So that's Paul's guidance for singlehood. Now we look at the hardest section in our passage for today. Movement four, biblical guidance for divorce. Now in light of Paul's teaching about preferring singleness, someone appears to have asked Paul, hey Paul, well I'm already married, so in light of the fact that you prefer singleness, should I just get divorced and then I'd be single? Maybe that's what I should do. And Paul addresses that. Verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, this is really interesting. Did you notice how he says, not I but the Lord say? What he's doing there is he's quoting the exact teaching of the Lord Jesus that he gave when he was living on this earth during his ministry from the Gospels, which is pretty amazing considering there is already in AD 53, which is when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, there is already a record of the teachings of the Lord Jesus that is circulating in the first century, and Paul is very aware of that teaching. So he says, this is not me. This is the Lord who taught this. You should have a high view of marriage and have a permanent model of marriage. This is straight from the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to come back to that passage in just a second. But notice, Paul also mentions that there are some conditions where a divorced person should remain unmarried in verse 11. If the door to reconciliation is still open, you should leave that door open and not get remarried until that door closes because restoring your marriage is always the goal whenever possible. Now next, someone someone asked Paul a different question. As they say, okay, well, Paul, wait a minute. I'm married, but I'm married to an unbeliever. So should I get divorced? And here's what Paul says about that. Verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. 
but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Pause for a second. Notice here, Paul says, not the Lord, but I say to you. What does he mean by that? What he means is that in terms of Jesus' teaching, this exact question was not addressed by the Lord Jesus while he was here teaching on this planet. So Paul says, here's the rule I'm going to give you as an apostle. It's not part of the Jesus tradition, but it is authoritative apostolic teaching. Namely, that if you've become a Christian and your spouse has not yet become a Christian, you should stay married to them if they're willing. But if they abandon you, Paul says, it's okay, you can let them go. Divorce would be permitted under that specific situation. If not, if they want to stick with you, stay together, Paul says. Notice, notice their thinking that he's addressing. Their thinking was, that a pagan partner would contaminate the marriage and the children. But Paul says, no, 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 no. It's just the opposite. It's not that the unclean makes the clean unclean. It's that the clean could make the unclean clean. You see what he said there? It's not that the unclean is going to make the clean unclean. He says, no, no, it's the clean that could make the unclean clean. This is an opportunity for your, undeserved, your, un, your unbelieving partner to hear the gospel and be saved, so stay married to them. Avoid divorce. Avoid divorce. This is the teaching of the Lord Jesus. This is the teaching of the Apostle Paul. It's a hard teaching, but it's one that we need to hear. We live in a culture that has the highest rate of divorce of any industrialized nation. Today, the social stigma of divorce that was once attached to divorce is slowly fading away. We now speak so casually about divorce. We speak of starter wives or starter husbands in this day and age. This idea is totally, totally toxic. We can't fathom the idea of a lifetime commitment between one man and one woman. We think that's totally unreasonable. Divorce in our society usually surrounds the adult desires. More often than not, it never takes into consideration the effect on the children, and it doesn't take on, in, into consideration the teaching of the Lord on this matter. This is a toxic culture. This is not recognizing how difficult divorce can be. This is not a judgment. Nobody knows this better than the divorced person. Divorce is beyond toxic. Here's a picture of an atomic bomb. Uh, the thermal capacity and the energy here is so powerful and destructive that it should only be used in an absolutely desperate situation as the absolute last resort. Divorce has the strength of an emotional atomic bomb. There will be fallout. There will be innocent bystanders who will be injured, and it will leave a deep crater in its wake. I know, I come as a child from a broken home, and I know firsthand how devastating divorce can be. But here's the question. What will you do when this question comes to you? If it is not you, perhaps it will come from someone around you. Perhaps as a friend or a family member approach you about this issue, what will you say to address the issue of divorce? How will you handle it? Especially when their relationship seems hopeless. Especially when it seems totally unfixable. What will you do when divorce comes to you? 
This issue has enormous consequences. Now, it might surprise you to learn that these questions are not new. As I mentioned, Jesus specifically taught on this when he was here. Let me remind you of his words in Matthew 19. It says this, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, it's clear they're trying to test Jesus and trap him to get him to take a stand on what was a controversial issue. At that point, everybody would be quiet. Everybody would be leaning in to see what the Lord Jesus is going to say to this question. At that time, divorce was very prevalent. It was something typically the man would initiate in those days. And people back then thought that a man had pretty much an inalienable right to divorce his wife for almost any and every reason. There was a verse in the Jewish Targum, which is a commentary on the Old Testament, which just simply says, quote, if you hate her, divorce her, unquote. So this was the milieu of where Jesus is. And Jesus speaks right into the debate. Look at his answer. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. What these leaders are referring to is a passage in Deuteronomy 24, which talks about procedures of an ancient divorce that, that um, involved giving a certificate. In biblical times, divorce was initiated by the husband to basically cast off his wife, and she was treated almost like property, and wives had little or no recourse in the justice of the law court if their husband were to turn them away. So divorce became easy, divorce became prevalent, and this law in Deuteronomy was to take that part of their culture, which was toxic and broken and wrought with problems, and try to regulate it to protect the woman. So it placed restrictions on the husband if he should decide to put his wife away. He had to give a certificate, and the certificate was there. If she needed to remarry, it would prove that she was already divorced, and the certificate was there to protect her from the accusation of adultery, and the certificate was there to protect her from her first husband trying to come back and reclaim her after he had already dissolved the marriage. And so this law about the certificate from Deuteronomy was to keep the social upheaval to a minimum. But Jesus says the only reason that law was ever given was because of the hardness of the human heart. Uh, the book of Malachi makes it clear that God actually hates divorce. Divorce is always very, uh, it's, very it, it's just a sin in God's eyes. It, it brings wreckage uh, everywhere it goes. It is a devastating uh, reality. And so God is trying to minimize the fallout. It is never God's perfect will. Now, in some cases, divorce may be allowed, but it is never mandatory. It, it's not even preferable. Uh, when a marriage uh, is restored after unfaithfulness, it can be a beautiful, wonderful reconciliation, and it is allowable. Now, we do have an official NBC position statement on marriage and divorce. We put that in your online message notes to study this issue further. And you'll see if you read that, there are three biblical justifications for the dissolution of a marriage covenant. The first is the death of a spouse, Romans chapter 7. The marriage can be uh, broken. The second 
is infidelity, as you see in Jesus' teaching here. And the third is the abandonment of a believing spouse by an unbelieving spouse. Those are the only three exceptions that are given in the Scriptures for divorce. I hesitate to even get into the exceptions because most people think that they're always the exception when the reality is the exceptions are actually quite rare. A few weeks ago, we had a guest speaker, Katie Faust, who uh, did our underground sessions on uh, parenting and children's rights, and she, she indicated that the research says that most divorces are not due to those biblical exceptions. The vast majority of divorces, she said, are found in low-conflict marriages. Very sad. Very toxic. Notice the teaching of the Lord Jesus on the screen. Notice what he says. It was God who created marriage. It was God who brought those two people together. And who is a man or a woman to separate what God has joined together? Notice also that Jesus affirms the definition of a marriage as that between a man and a woman. I say that because there are actually people today who say that Jesus didn't have an opinion on sexuality and gender. I would simply assert that that is not correct. Right here in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is affirming the Genesis chapter 2 ideal as marriage being the God-ordained institution between a man and a woman. You may believe what you want to believe about marriage and gender. That is fine. But you may not incorrectly insert into the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ words of affirmation that he never gave. That is blasphemous. Do we not have a fear of the Lord? Jesus had a high view of marriage. And this is why the enemy loves to attack our marriages. God creates marriage in Genesis chapter 2, and then the enemy comes in Genesis chapter 3. First comes the wedding, then comes the war. This is the story of the whole Bible. Now, there's a lot of lies that the enemy spreads, but one of the most prevalent lies in our day is this one right here. It's the lie that marriages dissolve because of something called the right one myth. Have you heard of the right one myth? The right one myth says there's just one person out there for you, like a puzzle piece, and you just have to find them. That's your job, to find the other part of your puzzle. And when you do, they will complete you, and you'll be happy forever. You've seen Jerry Maguire. Tom Cruise says it. You complete me. This is the right one myth. Friends, this whole idea is so toxic. Here's the problem with the right one myth. As soon as you start having conflict in marriage, which you will, you're going to think the reason you're having conflict in marriage is because you married the wrong person. You need to get rid of that person. You need to go find the right one. And here's the reality, though. Most of the time, the vast majority of the time, your marriage does not create the problems in your life. Your marriage simply reveals the problems in your life that were already there. It's like the toothpaste tube. It squeezes whatever's in there, it comes out. Marriage is the squeeze. Whatever's inside of you, whether that's toxic or not, will come out in that arena, in that context. The right one myth says, no, 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 maybe I married the wrong person. The Bible teaches, no, 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 you are the wrong person. And you need Jesus to make you into a new person. We all do. The root problem here is we often make an idol out of romance. And so let me address this. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies, there is a man that can complete you and, and fix you and renew you, but he is not your husband. His name is Jesus Christ. If you expect a created man or a created woman to do for you 
what only the creator can do for you, you will be perpetually dissatisfied in life. That's a toxic idea. And here's the problem. Whatever we idolize, we demonize. If our idol is not working and it's not providing what we want it to provide, we will begin to demonize that which we once idolized. This is the problem with the right one myth. We end up resenting our husbands or wives for not meeting the needs that only God can meet. Are you married to the right one? I like like this tweet from John Piper recently. He said this, wondering if you're married to the right person? Look at the name on the marriage certificate. (laughs) Often we relate to relationships, husbands and wives, like we are consumers. This is what keeps apps like Tinder in business, right? Swipe right to find Mr. Right. Now, for example, I have a relationship with my favorite smoothie restaurant, Smoothie King, in Warren. I go there like at least once a week. But friends, if I ever find another restaurant that makes a better smoothie for a better price, me and Smoothie King are through. It's just simply a consumer relationship. Now, sometimes we relate to marriage like consumers. I will meet your needs as long as you meet my needs. I'll fulfill my end of the bargain as long as you fulfill your end of the bargain. That's a consumer mindset. Marriage is a covenant relationship. Marriage says, I will be for you what I promised to be for you, whether you are for me what you promised or not. I covenant myself to you. My love for you is for better or for worse. That's the covenant of marriage. Now, how do we apply this text to our lives? Well, there's a lot of different ways. If you're here today and you're single and you're considering marriage in the future, I encourage you to adopt a permanent model for marriage in your life. I tell you this now because it will be something you need to decide before you get into marriage. Don't enter into this covenant lightly. Make sure you're ready to make a lifelong commitment to that other person that you find. For those of us who are already married and maybe struggling, I want to assert today, and I want to encourage you strongly as one of the pastors here, that I believe God wants your marriage to last. Don't hear me saying that I think you should tolerate abuse. That would involve a different conversation, maybe with some legal steps. But for most of us, In most cases, God wants you to stick together. Now, I acknowledge that marriage is hard. If it wasn't for our biblical view of marriage, our marriage wouldn't have made it as far as we have. If you need help, get the help that you need. Don't try to do it alone. Get counseling. Do what you need to do. But decide together, like the crew of the Apollo 13, that failure is not an option. Close the back door. Choose the permanent model of marriage. Friends, as a church, we together need to adopt the permanent model of marriage. And we need to support those who are struggling. And we need to, like the Lord Jesus Christ, say what God has joined together, let man not separate. Finally, some of you are here today going, man, I I have messed up so bad. 
I don't even know where to start with this sermon. I am just all over the map here. I am so fallen short here. And for you, let me just encourage you with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to say this, humbly embrace grace. The good news of Jesus. If you study the ministry of the Lord Jesus, whenever he encountered someone who missed it in this area, you will always find that Jesus never cast out a sexual sinner, not one time. If you look at the woman at the well in John chapter four, he offered her living water. The woman caught in adultery in John chapter eight, he offered no condemnation for her. The one who weeps at Jesus' feet, who loves much because she had forgiven much, he accepted her and defended her. His response is always the same to those who have blown it in this area. Mercy and forgiveness is offered for all of those who will humbly come to him. If we confess our sins and and he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that's the good news of the gospel. Here's the other good news. Even if you've made some mistakes in this area, here's how good our God is. God can even take your mistake and turn it into a miracle. God can take your ashes and turn it into something beautiful. God can take that mess that you have and turn it into your message and use it as a trophy of his grace in your life. That's our God, our merciful, loving, gracious God. That's the heart of our God. You know why the issue of marriage and divorce and covenant is so important to our God? It's because marriage is a picture of God's covenant relationship with us. Marriage is a reflection of God's covenant with us. Marriage is a picture of God's covenant with us. It's a reflection of heaven. Let me put that on the screen for you just to make it really clear. Marriage is a reflection of God's covenant with you and me. The reason this is so important to God is because the scriptures give us a great mystery, saying that Jesus Christ himself is a bridegroom And marriage is a picture of his love for you. This is why marriage is between a man and a woman. Because like Christ in the church, it's love across difference. Like Christ in the church, it's love that demands sacrifice. Like Christ in the church, it's a life-creating, flesh-uniting, sacrificial, never-ending, exclusive kind of love. Friends, if we're asked why we believe marriage is a union of a man and a woman, let's tell them the gospel This is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ and his church. Marriage is meant to point us to him. It's also meant to disappoint us. Even the best human marriages can only be a faint human echo of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the great mystery of Ephesians chapter five. This mystery is about Christ and his church You'll recall from the book of Genesis, Adam is created out of the dust of the earth. And he looks around, but he can find no helper that is suitable for him. And so God puts him into a deep sleep. And then out of his side, God fashions for him a bride. Just like that. The Lord Jesus came as the second Adam. But he could find no partner here that was suitable for him. And God, his father, put him to sleep on the cross. And out of his side, blood and water flowed. And out of the deepest part of the Lord Jesus Christ came the essence of who he was, his very righteousness. And out of that righteousness, God Almighty is fashioning for himself a bride for his son. 
This is what God is doing in our day. He is making for his son a bride that will be perfect and spotless and stainless and holy and ready for the wedding day. The reason these guardrails are there is because they're the aisles that lead us all the way down to the wedding, to the marriage supper of the lamb. Marriage is a picture of him. And one day when the bride is ready, The Lord Jesus will look at us and he will say, this is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. The bride has made herself ready. Marriage is a picture of heaven. And so whether you're single here today or whether you're married here today or whether you're divorced here today, whatever situation that you find yourself in today, know this. Marriage is a picture of your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the one your soul really desires. Isaiah chapter 54 says it so well. Let me put it on the screen for you. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come at this time as we just meditate on this thought for just a moment together. Can you imagine that day in the future with me for a moment? With our wedding garments on, There will be loved ones there who have gone on before with great rejoicing on that day as our tears are all wiped away and our sins have been released. As we gather for the feast, the church will be the bride when the lamb is glorified. Can we pray together? Oh, Heavenly Father, how grateful we are for this wonderful picture of what we one day hope and expect and long for, to be united with you as your bride. Help us, dear God, as those who have this hope inside of us to purify ourselves as you are pure. Find us ready and waiting for that day. You are the love of our soul. Where else would we wanna go? You're the one we desire. Make us a people in waiting and ready for you. For Christ's sake and for his reputation, we pray. Amen. I want to invite you.